In this month's Dhamma podcast, we present Chapter 4, The Course Experience, During, from the upcoming audiobook, Realizing Change, by Ian Hetherington. Chapter 4 The Course Experience, During The busy course program is designed to help the students, newcomers and those with previous experience, get the very most from their retreat. The teaching is presented systematically through daily instructions and talks. Students have the opportunity to meditate by themselves and as a group. Their progress is periodically checked by the conducting teachers. Although meditators are asked to maintain silence amongst themselves for the first nine days of the course, support and help is always at hand from the teachers and course managers. The day begins at 4.30am with students meditating in their rooms or in the hall where a chanting tape is played. Breakfast is at 6.30, followed by a group sitting in the hall and instructions. Individual meditation then continues and the teachers meet and meditate with students in small groups. Old students may be allocated their own meditation rooms or cells to enable them to work more independently and seriously. Lunch comes at 11 o'clock. Simple, nutritious, vegetarian food is served. A two-hour break in the middle of the day gives everyone a chance to rest, do their washing or exercise outside. The teachers are available for individual student interviews at this time. Meditation and checking continue in the afternoon. Tea and fruit for new students and lemon water or juice for old students are served at five o'clock. After the final session of group meditation, a taped evening discourse by Asen Goenka clarifies each day's practice. The teachers are again available after the talk to answer questions and students retire to bed by 9.30. To learn Vipassana, there are three steps to the training. Morality, mastery of mind and the development of insight. The course opens with some important formalities and initial instructions. The commitment to follow a simple moral code forms the foundation for successful meditation practice. By making deliberate efforts not to kill or lie or steal, not to engage in sexual misconduct or take intoxicants, one contributes to the well-being of the community. But equally, one is acting in one's own self-interest. As one develops in meditation, it becomes clear that to perform any unwholesome action at the physical or vocal level, one must first generate intense negativity in the mind. Only then will misdeeds result. By living a moral life, we prevent our minds from becoming tainted in ways that will be self-evidently harmful to ourselves and our neighbours. We also pave the way for effective meditation by freeing the mind of agitation, keeping it calm and quiet. The Buddha repeatedly emphasized the preeminence of mind over physical and vocal actions and the practical consequences of our mental attitude. In contrasting verses, he explains, If you speak or act with an impure mind, suffering follows, just as the wheel follows the ox pulling the cart. And then, If you speak or act with a pure mind, happiness follows, like a shadow that never leaves. Dhammapada, verses 1 and 2. The law of cause and effect, kama in the Pali language, always operates, he reminds us, whether we are aware of it or not, whether we like it or not. Payback is a fact. Inevitably, we do reap as we sow. To begin to meditate, we need something on which to focus our attention. 
There are many different techniques of meditation, using various methods to concentrate the mind. A word or phrase, an image, an object, contemplating one's thoughts. However, Vipassana, without condemning them, avoids all these approaches for one very significant reason. The goal of the technique is nothing less than total purification of the mind, for which concentration is a means, not an end in itself. The most suitable preparation for the practice of Vipassana is the exercise of developing awareness of respiration, anapana in Pali. This is the practice the students begin that first evening of the course and will develop over the next three and a half days. The student sits in a comfortable position with back and neck straight. Eyes and mouth are gently closed. One fixes one's full attention at the entrance of the nostrils, just observing the breath as it passes in and out. If the awareness is not distinct, one can intentionally breathe slightly hard for a few minutes before returning to the normal natural breath, the reality of the moment, which is the object of attention. The exercise itself is simple. Young children can understand and do it. In addition, it's completely non-sectarian and acceptable to all. And yet, the practice is not easy. Why? As soon as we try to be aware of respiration, a revolt begins in mind and body. Our system is not used to this discipline and aches and pains break out all over. At the same time, we are irritated to find that the mind finds a thousand distractions and seems quite unable to carry out this elementary task. Yet, by persevering with the practice, we start to realize through our own inner experience certain important truths about the mind. Even though it is not the direct object of meditation, we begin to see how cluttered with thoughts and feelings the mind is, how wild and lacking in order, how it prefers to roll in memories of the past or speculation about the future, rather than being in the present. How, if not lost in fantasies, it rolls in greed and hatred. It requires all our patience and persistence to keep proceeding in the face of a barrage of internal difficulties. With experience we come to accept how dull and crude the mind can be and smile at it. The difficulties too are part of the process. We learn not to become dejected or disillusioned when concentration seems impossible. Our job is just to keep trying. The simple act of maintaining proper efforts carries us through and, little by little, the storms die down and awareness does indeed become established. With continuous practice, the awareness becomes sharper and we're able to feel subtler objects in the area of mouth and nostrils. The touch of the breath, the temperature of the breath, and even sensations which have no connection with the respiration. The mind, meanwhile, becomes more tame and amenable allowing us to concentrate for longer periods without interruption. By observing the natural sensations in one limited area of the body and learning not to react to them, we are ready to begin the real work of purification. Vipassana. There was a lot of resistance in my mind though it had received such gentle and patient preparation. Experimentation with aids to sitting comfortably had been endless and the result was perfect. Little physical discomfort was experienced as I tried to attend exclusively to the practice of Anapana, and silence and half-light in the meditation hall was especially helpful. Sometimes, the small area of floor space it was possible to allocate to each student was proving to be a big problem. But then, so too, was the loneliness and boredom in my room at night 
particularly during wakeful periods, which were many. Perhaps boredom and non-activity were syndromes least well tolerated. They are states rarely experienced in daylight waking hours. So I fretted quite severely and resented the repetition of my attention's direction onto watching and returning to the small areas on my upper lip. Nothing much appeared to be happening there, but I discovered the abysmal lack of concentration and patience that I had. My mind's restless and wayward habit was revealed to me for the first time. I was shocked and found even very short episodes of stillness rare. The concept, be here now, has always attracted me. I was learning a little how to experience it for the first time ever. Much agitation and aversion arose in me as the days followed one another, and such strong negative urges. To escape was one, and often repeated in my mind. However, instructions and much assistance, clear and strong, upheld my wavering resolution. Jessie Brown, age 80, caregiver and housewife, lives in Gloucestershire, UK, and has been meditating for over 20 years. The first day of sitting cross-legged was agony. I am 50 years old and have an old back injury, which became extremely painful, and my knees and ankles also hurt. I had made a commitment to stay for 10 days and I have always believed in keeping to my commitments. However, I could not imagine that I could bear 10 times as much pain and it seemed that there was no hope for completing the course. I approached the assistant teacher with my problem and he suggested sitting with my back to the wall. This was immediately before Goenkaji's first video discourse and I was enthralled by what he had to say. He described my experience and his style was so refreshing to me that my spirits lifted. Never before had I encountered such wisdom that was consistent with my own experience. I looked forward to future discourses. As the days went by, the pain didn't get any better. But then about the third day I was thinking, my leg is in pain. And suddenly the meaning of the words and the experience coincided. My legs were in pain, but I was not. I was an observer of my legs in pain. I recognised that this was a technique that I had used at the dentist to avoid pain and panic. And from then on, I was mostly able to observe the pain without becoming involved in the cyclical chain of avoidance. I enjoyed going to second and third discourses also and was struck by the description of the mind as being full of chattering monkeys and wild horses with the odd rampaging elephant. I know that this is a true description for all people but I'd been considered by my friends to have an additional dose and to use thinking to excess. It was a real battle to get control of my mind but I was hooked on the idea. I'm very determined. Ron Thompson gave up a computer software career to become a philosopher. He sat his first Vipassana retreat in New Zealand in 1998. On the second day of his first Vipassana course, S. N. Goenka nearly ran away. In Rangoon, at his teacher's centre, meditators were allowed to talk during the first days of the course, the period of Anapana. Naturally, they discussed their different experiences of meditation. On the second day, fellow students recounted to him their experiences of divine sight and divine sound. According to his preconceived notions of meditation, these were signs of high attainment far superior to the observation of ordinary breath and sensations, which he had been diligently practising. All afternoon, I was full of dejection, 
an overpowering conviction arose in me that, as was said by a saintly person, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the gates of the kingdom of heaven. Here was I, a rich man, looking for entry into the kingdom of heaven. An impossible job. No wonder these other meditators were more successful than I. They were quiet people, without the twisted mind of a businessman, not involved in the rat race of making money. By evening, I'd made up my mind to give up the course and go back home. Every day, at five in the afternoon, a car came from my house with fresh laundry and other necessities. I was sure that the teacher would not give his consent to my leaving. I decided to slip away in my car that evening. Goenka went to his room and began to pack. Fortunately, however, a fellow meditator sensed he was in difficulties and went to speak with him. When he explained why he was leaving, she urged him to forget about this craving for divine lights or sounds. The teacher was pleased with his progress. Why not try for just one more day? Inspired by her words, Goenka once again settled down to meditate, determined to give all importance to respiration and sensations in the nostrils and mouth area, and to forget about anything else, as his teacher had asked him to do. Very soon, as his mind became concentrated, he experienced a bright, star-like light, and soon after other extrasensory experiences began to occur. These were what he had been craving, but now he understood that his task was to observe the objects of meditation only and to ignore any distractions. The timely intervention of this kindly lady stopped him from running away and missing something of priceless value to a human being. At the start of the course, I experienced little more than resentment and disorientation. Everything was wrong, wrong, wrong. The technique, so different to what I was used to. My place in the hall among the new students, despite years of sitting. The teachers. But I had agreed to give everything I had to the technique, and within a day or two, I started to notice some subtle but very interesting changes. A breaking up of the density that had been my normal experience. Leaving the meditation hall on the third morning, I encountered an orange tabby cat. She looked at me while I was slipping into my sandals, and I saw that she was missing her right eye, just like me. My instant reaction was that this made her special, not lame or in any way deficient, as I had always semi-consciously considered myself to be as a result of my disfiguring accident at age three. My immediate acceptance of the cat transferred to myself instantaneously, and I burst into tears. Wow, pure self-acceptance. What a wonderfully unlooked-for joy. This was my first experience of a crack in my thick and well-kept armour that allowed a little exultation to seep through. It was such a relief to be able to think of myself or to feel myself as whole as being perfectly and gloriously who I am, weird-looking blind eye and all. Jason Farrell, Canada The discipline was quite strict, but personally I think it needed to be. For me, I needed a kick. There's this battle going on, parts of me saying, this is great, I want to go to India to do a 30-day retreat. And the other part saying, are you crazy? What are you doing here? This is hard, you must be out of your mind. I knew there'd be a battle before I came here, but the longer I stayed, I learned to observe that. Okay, I'm going through this thing. Let's just watch it. Excerpt from a post-course interview with first-time student. 
in Australia in 1990. The centre was very nice, peaceful, with a lot of trees, bushes and plants between the dormitories. I shared my room with a Canadian who on three occasions during the ten days was so deep in his meditations that he accidentally locked me in the room by bolting the door from the outside. This placed me in a dilemma. Should I break noble silence by shouting for help, or should I risk missing the group sittings? I ended up rattling the door until someone took pity on me. Tony White, from UK. The teaching of Vipassana is given on the fourth day of the course. By this time, the students have settled into the silent rhythm of the program. With the help of the breath, they've had some success in focusing and calming the wayward mind. Their understanding of the practice, too, is growing through their own direct experience of the meditation, the explanations and encouragements in the discourses, and regular interaction with the conducting teachers. The object of meditation in Vipassana is once again universal and completely non-sectarian. With the heightened awareness accomplished during Anapana, one moves the attention throughout the entire body, from head to feet and feet to head, scanning every part of the body and introspecting each and every sensation one observes on the way. Along with this expansion in the area of awareness, comes another complementary aspect of the technique, developing equanimity, the ability to keep a balanced mind, whatever the nature of the sensations one meets. The sensations on the body, real, normal, physical sensations, like heat, heaviness, perspiration, pain, numbness, tingling, vibrating, are at the core of the meditation practice taught by the Buddha. Everything in the mind flows along with sensations on the body. Mulaka Sutta and Guttara Nikaya. In this single sentence, he pinpoints the interrelationship between mind and body. If our thoughts really do manifest with physical sensations, then ultimately we can learn to read our minds with the help of our bodies but more immediately, by learning not to react to the sensations, whether they're pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, we stop creating tensions for ourselves now and allow past mental conditionings to surface and unravel. This was the authentic path of purification the Buddha discovered, beyond the extremes of austerity and license, which took him to full enlightenment a state of indescribable happiness where all mental impurities have been eradicated. At first, as we survey the body in meditation, we tend to encounter mostly solidified, coarse-type sensations, or else blank areas where there appear to be no sensations at all. By working calmly, however, we find that if we can manage not to react to those unpleasant sensations, their intensity naturally dissolves. We begin to experience for ourselves the arising and passing away of sensations on the body, sometimes slowly, sometimes with great rapidity, ultimately reaching a stage where we feel no solidity in the body whatsoever. With growing objectivity, we are able to appreciate the interrelationship between body and mind and the impermanent nature of both. At the mental level, thoughts and emotions keep surging up during meditation. Following the technique, we learn either to express this flow of mental content, such as anger, passion, fear and sadness, nor to suppress it. Rather, we practice to simply observe the sensations or the breathing, which arise along with the mental content. The more successful we are in the practice, the more bare observation and understanding cancel out and replace the tendencies to greed, hatred and ignorance in our minds. 
Through practicing Vipassana, we begin to explore for ourselves the Four Noble Truths which the Buddha taught. First, the truth of suffering. So clear both physically and mentally when we sit in meditation and made noble in precious moments of wisdom when we can just observe and not react. And what causes this suffering but constant craving and attachment to ourselves and our desires? Realising this cause experientially is the second truth. I has become so important and letting go, whether it be possessions, opinions or surrendering to our own inevitable end, has become so hard. This is one half of the picture. But the teaching is optimistic as well as realistic. Insight developed through meditation also reveals to us the third truth that there is another way. We do have a choice to reduce and finally eliminate our suffering. Not only is there really an end to adversity, which we experience working with sensations in our practice, but this path, the fourth noble truth, living a moral life, controlling and purifying the mind, is taking us towards that high goal. Having so often noted the laws of nature in the outside world, in the flux of the tides, night and day, birth, life and death, we now begin to realise how these same laws apply inside each one of us. We begin to see and accept that this continuous state of change which we are witnessing is entirely impersonal and operating beyond our control despite constant attempts on our part to identify with it. The truth breaks over us like a rising dawn, that everything we experience is essentially unsatisfactory in character, either because it's not to our liking, or, if we do desire it, because it too will pass away soon enough. Vipassana gives us the capacity to be fully aware of everything that's taking place, breaching the barrier between conscious and unconscious mind. Vipassana also helps to train the mind to remain detached in every situation, moving beyond the push and pull of sensations, towards real peace. Today, anyone can practice this technique, and with proper guidance and sincere efforts, they can take steps towards the same ultimate goal. Meditator or no, we may feel intuitively that this account of the mind-body phenomenon is correct, yet it takes time to understand the process for ourselves. Continuous change, suffering and egolessness, anicca, dukkha and anatta in Pali, characterise our worldly existence. A teacher can only show the way, the Buddha said. He or she cannot liberate anyone. Each individual has to make one's own bid for freedom. One day after another, the students on the course work more seriously. Practicing Vipassana clears space for deep personal change. Therefore, old habits facing eviction put up a fight. Obstacles to their meditation keep surfacing. Intense likes and dislikes. Drowsiness. Agitation. Waves of doubt. Students are relieved to learn that this is quite normal. With determination and courage, they're increasingly able to stand their ground and ride out the storms. They are growing in confidence. There's a deepening appreciation of the teaching and the strength of mind they are achieving. In meditation, the science of mind and body reveals itself to us. We examine ourselves both at the physical and mental level with the aid of body feelings. There is no reliance on God or divine forces to attain the result. We take upon ourselves the responsibility for the reality of the present. The future will then take care of itself, while the hold the past has over us gradually weakens. Through the practice of Vipassana meditation, 
we begin to see what actually is taking place in mind and body, moment to moment. For instance, an unpleasant incident occurs, an argument with a friend or the car won't start, and I react angrily. In response, it seems, to this external situation. However, investigating the truth at the depth of the mind, the Buddha discovered a missing link between stimulus and response. Some sensation or other arises in the body as a result of the initial experience, and it is to this sensation that we react, not in fact to the outside world. A biochemical flow is constantly being triggered and released inside, which manifests as different sensations. Previously, we were either unaware of this subtle mind-body phenomenon, or we were continually overwhelmed by these body sensations and our reactions to them. A habit pattern, full of blocks, obsessions, confusions, fantasies and complexes, was created, with no one but ourselves to blame. This resulted in entrenched views and behaviours without any apparent relief or release. And because nothing in the world, inside or outside ourselves, remains fixed, a constant process of multiplication of accumulated impurity, Sankara in Pali, was piling up misery upon misery for us. Little wonder at times that without a technique to provide perspective, and direction. Someone despairs at their ability to shift this burden. But with Vipassana, there is a way out. By training our minds to observe sensations without reaction, we can halt the negative process in which we have become trapped. Not only do we gain immediate benefit from avoiding blind reactions, we also begin to clear out the impurities deep inside the reverse process, a virtuous cycle, has been set in motion. The insight we develop helps us find skillful solutions to our problems. If the body is not given food, it will eventually die. However, despite starvation, it is able to continue for several weeks. Why? because the fats and other materials within the physical structure are sufficient to sustain it for a limited period. The mind, which constantly requires some kind of input, works in a similar way. If we stop generating and ingesting negative thoughts and emotions, the stock of impurity made in the past gets released. By facing the problem, we are relieved of it. Rechargeable batteries work on the same principle. To discharge, you need do nothing. Just stop the current from coming in. Anyone is welcome to try for themselves and see the truth of this. The wisdom of others, in written and spoken form, we can only receive second-hand and never possess. We can use the intellect for critical thinking, but it will not solve the fundamental problems of existence which lie beyond its reach. If, however, inspiration and reasoning lead us to develop our own wise understanding through personal experience, they will have served a worthwhile purpose. For this personal wisdom alone will liberate the mind and convince us that the technique works. The Buddha himself recommended this pragmatic approach to adopting a spiritual path, not to be swayed by a teacher or a tradition, a speculation, or the view of the majority. After observation and analysis, when it agrees with reason and is conducive to the good and gain of one and all, then accept it and live up to it. Kalama Sutta and Guttara Nikaya Sitting a ten-day course, we can give our undivided attention to this introspective process. Working to an intensive schedule and making continuous efforts, we can indeed train the mind to the task of self-observation. Not that we will become perfect by the end of a single course, but we gain an outline of the technique and the experience of the sensations in relation to mind and body. 
We feel the changes taking place inside. We gain the tools to carry us through life and soon we will have the chance to put the practice to use. When Goenkaji explained the Four Noble Truths on that first night, I embraced the First Noble Truth with acceptance and relief. There I was, on my honeymoon, living out dreams I had had for years, and yet I was painfully unhappy with my husband, myself, and my life. I finally had to face the truth for myself, that life is indeed suffering. With the first Anapana instructions, I felt elated. For a few years, I'd been intrigued with the idea of observing breath, but hadn't known how to go about it. Suddenly, here was the way to do it, and with such a clear purpose, to concentrate the mind. As the course progressed, I struggled with my agitated mind and extreme pain all over my body. By the time Vipassana instructions were given, the pain was beginning to feel overwhelming. As we moved our awareness through the body to observe the sensations, trying not to react, I understood and fully accepted that this is the way to come out of suffering. I realised that I'd finally found what I'd been looking for in my life, even though I hadn't known it. Karen Donovan, USA A medical doctor was specialising in abnormal and clinical psychology when he and a friend took their first retreat. My mind was never accepting of blind faith. I participated in the Vipassana course with doubts, nurtured by direct experience of prevalent spiritual hypocrisy. However, this doubt was tempered with scientific openness. A strange event took place there. Doubt evaporated and real faith sprouted. A scientific mind bowed down in reverence. The experiment was conducted for ten days in strictly controlled conditions. I tried to work with full sincerity. The vow of silence was strictly observed. Instructions were literally followed. Unaccustomed to sit in one posture for a long time, my mind was very much agitated for the initial two to three days. But that initial agitation had to surrender to strong determination. With the very start of Vipassana, impurity exploded in the eyes, which turned red and sore, continually emitting thick discharge for several days. Aware that eruptions of impurities can happen during the practice, this did not cause discouragement or any obstruction. Due to eye soreness, my eyes were mostly kept closed or downcast, which was helpful to meditation. Before joining the course, I'd been passing through a very critical and stressful period of life for the previous couple of years. Now clouds of stress and strain evaporated and the mind system was thoroughly cleansed, becoming full of freshness, liveliness and lightness. Gradually the eye trouble subsided and after two or three days, at the end of the course, it was all right. Dr. Ram Nayan Singh Postgraduate College, Ghazipur, India. When we had become adjusted to detecting the subtle body sensations, I was immediately able to observe old and present injuries, and some improvement was noticed. I soon became aware of sensations in my lower abdomen, which relate to some discomfort in my bowels. Observing these sensations relieves the discomfort. At times, I became very clear of subtle sensations and was able to sweep my entire body from head to feet and back several times per second. At such times, the individual sensations from every part of my body were quite clear and very precisely located, so that it seemed like my awareness was very many times greater in a very much smaller time. At other times, gross sensations dominated parts of my body and sweeping was impossible. I fell into the trap of craving and aversion for these conditions, 
and gave myself a roller coaster ride, being at incredible highs with the most magic energy coursing through me, and then within a day being in the depths of despair. Ron Thompson, New Zealand. I found it a strange combination of torture and tranquility. The sitting position was so uncomfortable it felt to me that all my joints would dislocate. My mind wouldn't stay on the simple subject of observing my sensations. It seemed to find remembering sexual encounters far more interesting. This I found totally infuriating. But gradually, as the days progressed into an enjoyable routine, I felt a tranquility that I knew I'd been searching for for years. By the time the course ended, all too soon, I felt that I was just getting the hang of it. Tony White from UK On the fifth or sixth day of the course, my awareness of sensations penetrated inside the body. The teacher was very kind to interview me every day and solve my difficulties through these discussions. On the sixth night, I could barely get to sleep, and the next day when I met him, my teacher said, Tanda, you always say, I had to, I had to, a lot. Do you think you're the only one doing all things yourself? I answered, Sir, I still think the mind is my mind, and my mind is making everything happen. He replied, To practice Dhamma, effort should be at minimum. Try reducing the effort you put in. From that time on, I tried to observe my way of meditation, putting too much effort into working, too much I will do, I am doing, big I. I saw I was identifying with the sensations. Finally, sitting with no effort, I realised that sensations come naturally and go naturally. They come and go not because I'm doing something, but because of their nature. At the same time, I could see myself, how proud, how self-centred, how selfish I was. These experiences were things I will not forget for my whole life. Tanda Wynn from Myanmar It was a real struggle, full of ups and downs but I knew it had to be good because it was so simple, pure, and most of all about practice, practice, practice. Like the bitterest and most natural remedies, it proved to be the most beneficial, the sweetest in its reward. The course was heightened by many Dhamma brothers and sisters working hard, incredible tea times, sunset watchings, beautiful night sits punctuated by the chirping and croaking of one solitary frog, Skies full of shining stars and galaxies. The howls of coyotes mournfully crying out their existence. A spider's web full with early morning dew hanging perfection. A ghost face halo on nearby plants. On occasions, time seemed very different. Distinct, sharper, the edges of all things glowing with the Nietzsche, the impermanence of all things. As I looked from clock to tea steam, to crimson sunset, to quivering grass, to chalk mark jet streams in the opaque blue sky, I realised the Nietzsche as a truth. Max Keeley, a 26-year-old Canadian elementary school teacher, artist and healer, first found Vipassana at Dhamma Mahavana, California in 1997. Meditation practice wasn't so deep because of baby's pushings. He didn't want me to sit in the hall for more than 10 minutes at a time. And the best words for him were, may all beings be happy, when he moved strongly and then relaxed at last. Olga Mamikina, a physician, took a course at a nearby rented site towards the end of her first pregnancy. She lives with her husband and young son in Moscow, Russia. It's quite informative to look back and compare the quality of successive mornings, 
especially the early 4.30 to 6.30 session, when I was experiencing the most difficulty. On the first day, I was wholly the resenter. I had a very difficult time handling my noisy fellow meditators, my recorded teacher, and my enforced and seemingly superficial new meditation technique. By the fifth morning, what other people were doing simply didn't matter. I had too much going on inside to give noises and judgments any energy. And by the eighth morning, I was more than capable of beaming loving acceptance to all my brothers and sisters, the brave and gallant souls who had chosen to plumb the depths of their own inner waters for all these tempestuous days. My heart was absolutely open to all of them, and no resentment was possible or even conceivable. Coming to the course, my task had been to clean up the cluttered basement of my mind. I had begun it with a great weight of drudgery attached like a ball and chain to the job. But there I was on day eight, in the same basement with much of the same garbage, cluttering it up, and I was feeling pretty good about it. The sole difference was my attitude. I had come to recognise on a very deep level that I could love my own silly garbage. I didn't even have to chuck it all out immediately and discovered that it was lots easier to laugh about it than agonise over what to do with it. Jason Farrell, Canada The first steps are always the hardest in anything you want to do. But once you make that step, like I do a lot of work in gold mining, dredging, the first ounce is the hardest to get. But once you get it, you're away. Excerpt from a post-course interview with a first-time student in Australia, 1990. On the morning of the tenth day, a new type of practice is taught, the meditation of loving-kindness, metabhavana in Pali. This final part of Vipassana has a different focus and uses an altogether different technique. For Vipassana, it's essential to maintain one's attention on the sensations within the framework of the body to carry out the work of self-purification. However, to practice metta, the sharing of all one has gained with others, one deliberately fills these same sensations with feelings of goodwill and compassion, which radiate throughout the body and into the atmosphere beyond. Having first worked to purify oneself, sending vibrations of harmony and selfless love to others is an integral part of the meditation practice, producing powerful positive effects. From now on, as they approach the end of the course and prepare to reconnect with the world outside, the meditators will practice a few minutes of metta after every sitting of Vipassana. Later, I again began to feel a wash in the ecstatic feeling. Instead of pulsing through, the feeling persisted in my body. In fact, it seemed to be what my body was made of. The immediate environment seemed essentially identical. Into this environment I felt the arrival of my parents. They had died about six months apart, approximately ten years earlier. Now they were back with me in a realistic and very powerful way. I loved them in a whole and healing manner. I felt that everything in our past together was just as it should have been, and that everything was complete. This brought a sense of final closure with any dissatisfaction I had ever had and a new flow of love for them. By now the feeling of love and the sensation of ecstasy had become intertwined. They seemed to be as one. And then another new aspect of this ecstasy began to assert itself. Before this I'd seemed to be the passive recipient. Now I came to feel as I produced it from somewhere within me. I flooded my parents with it and then began to produce it in ever greater quantity until it began to flow upward out of me. This flow went straight upward until it encountered a substantial blanket of similar material which encapsulated the whole globe. That which I produced turned rather abruptly when it encountered the blanket 
and flowed along within it, fully integrated, yet maintaining its distinct identity. It flowed laterally towards some unknown destination, and then it turned abruptly downwards. Its destination was my ex-wife and my brother, both located in Seattle. These were the two living people with whom love and problems created a strong response in my life. Now I was pouring love into them. As with my parents, there was now only love in great abundance. Ultimately, the strongest part of the experience was not with any of the four people it involved, but rather with the thick blanket of love, which I felt to be encompassing the earth. Charles Brown, USA People sometimes feel that meditation is an introverted and rather selfish activity. What about the ills of the world while you're contemplating your navel? Vipassana is a self-centered technique in the sense that only by working correctly on ourselves can we really be in a position to help others. But the whole thrust of the meditation is towards dissolving the false ego we have created and which now controls us. Little by little, as we transcend selfish egotism, we naturally want to turn the inner directed energy and insight outwards. In this way, we complete the circle of self and others. Learning Vipassana meditation is a lifetime job. We continue to work with the same simple technique as we progress on the path, expanding and deepening our sensitivity and balance of mind. A range of practical tools is being acquired and internalised to apply whenever and wherever it may be required. We own that pile of dirty washing, it's a fact. But for anyone established in the practice, there's no doubting the ability of this soap to bring it all up clean and bright. Noble silence is lifted after the teaching of metta. As they emerge from the meditation hall, Students greet each other warmly, like long-lost friends. At last they can exchange experiences and review where they stand. So how was the silence? Hard for a few days, feeling conditioned somehow to communicate, like over breakfast. From then on it was fine blissful even. Bit of a problem getting the voice going again. Excerpts from post-course interviews with first-time students in Australia, 1990. The intensive phase of the course is done. Now's the time to become extroverted again, while still maintaining contact with the truth inside. The time to see how to integrate Vipassana with everyday living. Group sittings and discourses continue until the following morning, but the programme for the final day is deliberately lighter and more flexible to help along the process of adjustment. There is laughter and ease over lunch as the stories flow. Although the course was tough, it wasn't all seriousness. After all, we're dealing with human beings. There were some hilarious moments. Like the meditator to my left, who was an old gentleman and had been permitted in view of his condition to use a chair. The sweet old man would usually come a little late for the meditation sessions and then promptly fall asleep, snoring gently. In spite of his infirmity, I noticed he was usually the first to get his meal. Then there was an incident on the eighth day during one of the group sittings. I felt a stinging pain on my right foot and then another and I thought, my God, ants, what am I going to do? Then another thought entered my head. Was it at all possible that my bad sankharas were coming out in this form, in which case it was all the more important that I be equanimous? I tried to keep calm even though I suffered a few more burning sensations on my thigh. Finally the hour came to an end and I immediately examined my burning foot. 
You guessed it. They were ants. Professor P. N. Shankar is Deputy Director at the National Aerospace Laboratories in Bangalore, India. His wife Preeti, a professor at the Indian Institute of Science, also practices Vipassana. In one of the dining rooms, a visual display has been mounted of Vipassana centres around the world, with details of contacts and course schedules for the coming months. There's also an exhibition of books and tape materials about Vipassana and information about where they can be purchased. In the afternoon, there will be a short talk explaining how someone, all old students now, can get involved in service of different kinds. That night, conversations often continue long after lights out, and then suddenly it's morning, and after one final strong sitting, the course is over. In an hour or two, some of our meditators will be back in front of the computer screen, at meetings or cuddling the baby. Others will wait a while, enjoying the peace, helping around the site, swapping addresses before moving out. As the days passed, I continually wondered if Tim was experiencing the same benefits and feeling the same appreciation and gratitude for the technique that I was. After Meta was taught on day 10, I quickly went to look for him and found him outside at the display board. He was examining the upcoming course schedule and found a course that we would attend three months later in Japan. We were delighted to discover that our enthusiasm and appreciation was mutual. Karen Donovan, USA Madhu Sapri from Mumbai is 26 years of age. She is an arts graduate and an accomplished athlete. By chance, she took up modelling when she was 19 and it became her profession. Almost immediately, she was made Miss India, then runner-up to Miss Universe, and her life changed drastically. She went to London and Paris to work, and it all seemed great fun. From 91 to 96, I didn't have time, or rather didn't take out time, even to breathe. I was just going with the flow. I was very lucky to have so many opportunities. But never once did I sit back and think, who am I? What do I want? Outwardly, everything was great. I was famous, looking good, making good money, travelling, etc. But I was breaking inside. I had two or three nervous breakdowns. I went to three or four shrinks, but nothing helped. I was going crazy. Every day my situation was becoming worse. I started taking pills to go to sleep, but my mind was overworking so much that even that wouldn't help. I started to fear facing each day. If I wasn't working, I would lock myself in my room and cry continuously. I could not believe that the relationship with my boyfriend, whom I loved more than my life, wasn't working. I became obsessive. I started self-pitying. I could not forget the past, the beautiful time we had together. I just couldn't see the reality for what it was, in the present. As well as insomnia, I also had eating disorders and used to starve myself for 15 to 20 days. Then there was the tension of work. I had to put up a face for other people. Slowly, slowly, I lost interest in everything. I started thinking of ways of killing myself. I'd become so self-centred that I didn't even realise that my parents, with whom I was living, were also suffering so much. Basically, I was in a mess. I thought soon I'll be clinically mad. And then my father told me to come to Vipassana. In fact, I'd heard about the technique about three years back from my ad agency owner in London. She had attended a few courses herself. But at that time, I took it very lightly. Then when my father mentioned it to me, I remembered Josie and decided to come on a course myself. 
Actually, when I arrived here, I only knew that you were not supposed to talk, that's all. I had no idea about the meditation program and that this was going to change my life. When we got Vipassana on the fourth day, I felt I was going mad. I didn't know what was going on in my body. I just went to my room and started howling because there was so much pain and sensations. I was ready to go home. I said to myself, I can't deal with this. But also I was very much disturbed because of the discourses we had every evening. The teacher was talking about morality and so many good things and I had seen exactly the other extremes, drugs, alcohol, you name it, which are part of this glamorous profession. I cried a lot on the fourth and fifth days. Luckily, I was able to talk to the assistant teacher about what I was feeling, and she gave me masses of support and good advice. As the days passed, my questions grew fewer. It was amazing. Every time I had questions, they would all be answered as I listened to the discourses. I was also improving in meditation. I would look forward each day to going to the hall to meditate and to hear the discourses. All this was so new to me. Life started looking very bright and clear. I didn't even know when I got out of my depression. I started getting all the solutions. My anxiety went away. There was no confusion anymore. I also stopped blaming everybody else and disliking them for whatever they had done to me. There were also many times when I could not concentrate or keep the thoughts out of my mind. Initially, I started getting very angry and agitated because I was scared that if I don't achieve this in 10 days, I will go out and be miserable again. Then I realized that it will take some time. I should relax. So whenever apart from group sittings, I felt distracted. I used to get up and go out for five minutes and then come back. I thought I should be happy that at least I have found the medicine. Now it's in my hands to continue the practice. Coming to Vipassana was a miracle for me. It has saved my life. And I'm so grateful to all the teachers and Dhamma servers who helped me get through this successfully. The day I came here is the most unforgettable day in my life. And being able to remain here for 10 days is a bigger achievement than any other title that I have won. It has once again brought back my confidence and courage. I'm almost grateful that I was so miserable because otherwise I wouldn't ever have thought about coming here. Madhu Sapri from Mumbai I realised how caught up I was in my own little world of all the egocentric things, trying to make myself happier, just for myself. I was giving to other people, but not without expecting something in return. There was a very quiet, compassionate support in the wings, and that was very reassuring. I mixed well with all the others, everyone so easygoing, so cooperative. I think it's well organised, wonderful that people who meditate here come back to give service and become part of it, because it keeps the feeling so alive. Everything just seems to fall into place. Excerpts from post-course interviews with first-time students in Australia, 1990. My friends had thought it funny that I, an incessant talker, was going to be silent for ten days. In fact, that was not a difficulty. On the tenth day of the course, we were allowed to talk When I discussed the course with other students, I was surprised to discover that the subtle body sensations were present all the time without any effort on my part. In rapid succession, I was confronted by the effects of certain habits that I had developed and which I had varying degrees of awareness of before. When I interrupted someone, I had one sensation. When I had critical thoughts about what someone was saying, I had another. And when I talked too much without being sensitive to others, a third body sensation occurred. These were rapidly established as reliable indicators, and before long, I was able to stop myself whenever I began to do these things. Ron Thompson, New Zealand. 
The actual experience of taking a course and just reading or talking about it are very different things. The actual experience of allowing oneself to take ten days off from our busy lives and just live like a monk or nun in noble silence is something words alone cannot describe. The fact that total strangers are living, eating and meditating side by side for such an extended period of time in such peace and harmony is very hard to find anywhere else. Eva Sofonpanich, a Swedish national, living and working in Thailand, sat her first Vipassana retreat in 1990. During the course, the door to the inner world, the world of my sensations, opened, making the picture whole. Knowing such obvious things as, I should be good to people, I should be kind, I should generate only love and peace, is often not enough to apply them in everyday life. Now it seems to me that I've got the tool that can make it possible. Galina Rutsova, a translator, wrote these comments after sitting a course in Moscow, Russia, in summer 1998. When the course finished on the morning of the 11th day, the servers asked if we could help tidy up. This was a precious moment. For ten days they were our loving parents, and now the time had arrived. We could fly. We were old students, and if we had the goodwill to donate our time, we could do for others what they had done for us. Heather Downey, wife and mother of two, first encountered the technique at the Tasmania Vipassana Centre, Hobart, Australia. She's a registered nurse and works part-time in a nursing home. During the clean-up jobs following the final breakfast with my dumber brothers and sisters was a great joy, as was recrossing the Rocky Mountains with two different course members, a father and son, who also happened to be Farrells. This was the second of his children the father had introduced to Vipassana. His son had been drifting, 22 years old with no clear focus. The course, he said, had given him an absolute direction. Everything seemed clear and simple to him now, and guaranteed to change. It had been hot during those ten early spring days in the foothills. Flood warnings were up, sandbags were being laid in low-lying areas, and those eternal peaks were bound to fall under the waves once again, given enough days and nights, enough snow and wind. Just observe, I told myself, as we crossed from east to west, and as I too headed for a new life. Just observe. Jason Farrell, Canada. Find this and many more podcasts at Pariyadi, a nonprofit publisher who offers written, audio, and video content, and whose mission is to enrich the world by disseminating the words of the Buddha, providing sustenance for the seeker's journey, and illuminating the meditator's path. For more information, please go to www.pariyatti.org. That's pariyati.org. For more information about Vipassana meditation, please visit www.dhamma.org. That's dhamma.org.